1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, this is Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know God. The custom of the priest with the temple was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh and all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they laid with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man, Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose for him out of of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out 
to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the young man, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Let's take a moment to reflect together on this story from God's word. A challenging sermon text today, and some of you no doubt will be challenged by it. And so after the service, I'll be up here following the service with an elder. And you feel like a need for somebody to pray for you, we'd love to, to pray for you. You may have come just needing somebody to pray for you about something that I don't say here today. That's totally fine. But we just want to be available for prayer because we think God works through that. So if you need prayer this morning, please come up following the service. In 410 AD, 410 AD was a, a pivotal moment in Western history. 410 AD, in case you don't know or remember your history, was a, uh, when a destructive nomadic tribe called the Vandals or the Visigoths Aren't those great names for a destructive nomadic tribe? The Visigoths. That just sounds like a great name. They come in and they invade and capture the city of Rome. At that time, the city of Rome was known as the Eternal City because literally the people thought Rome would never fall in any kind of human timeline at all. So they called Rome the Eternal City. And they realized the Eternal City was not eternal in 410 A.D., And as soon as the eternal city collapsed, it was like an earthquake really across the Western culture, and it eventually caused the collapse of the whole empire. And after this massive collapse, it's not surprising that people began to try to figure out, well, who's really at fault for the collapse? This happens all the time. There's some kind of problem, and then in the analysis of the problem, you say, well, who caused the problem? Who's who's at fault? And there were many secular people living in Rome, and they were quick to blame the Christians. They believed the Christians were the reason for the fall of the Roman Empire, and especially Rome. And they believed that the Christians were not patriotic enough because they asked the people to serve God rather than Caesar, and that the Christians advocated forgiveness of your enemies. And so they thought that made Rome weak and caused them to collapse. A great Christian man, really a giant of a Christian man named Augustine, who lived at that time, wrote a response to that argument. And his response is now a classic book called The City of God. And he makes several arguments against these secularists about the fall of Rome. But one of the primary arguments he makes is that the fall of Rome was because of a spiritual and moral corruption of the people. There was an internal corruption of the culture that eventually sort of wore out the underneath or hollowed out the culture itself 
and that led to the whole collapse of the empire. Internal decay, Augustine would say, leads to external collapse. So let that sink in. Internal decay leads to external collapse. When you turn in your Bibles to the end of Judges and the beginning of 1 Samuel, this is the same time period, you're observing the collapse of another culture. And uh, it's easy to see what's taken place here. So I want you to just turn back with me to the left to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. Verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Judges 1.1. So Israel had come into the promised land under this great general named Joshua. He is, has died, and they're inquiring of the Lord. We, we, we want to follow somebody like Joshua. We, wanna, we want another leader, and we're listening to you, Lord, as to who that leader may be. And then turn with me to the very last line of the book of Judges. A couple of hundred years later, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And now there's no leader. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They, they, they don't have a leader and they don't want a leader. They're not inquiring of the Lord anymore because they'd rather follow their own voice. They've gotten used to hearing their own voice and following after their own voice. And this leads to a collapse of the culture. And so when we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're really arriving at the bottom of this collapse. And I want to pick up some lessons from this dying culture, which is the title of the sermon. And I want to mainly think about three things. If I were to title these as little chapters in my sermon, the first chapter would be the enemy within. The second would be God's quiet work. And the third would be leadership off the leash or leadership unconstrained. The enemy within, God's quiet work, and leadership off the leash. So let's look at these three. First, the enemy within. In 1979, I was a junior in high school, and I didn't have very discerning tastes. I didn't have very discerning taste in uh, what I wore. I didn't have very discerning taste in movies that I watched. And so I would get together with some guys, and just whatever was playing at the theater, we'd find one of the movies that we wouldn't watch, and it was, either had to be something scary or like a war movie or something like that. And so we went to see this movie called When a Stranger Calls. And I'm not recommending that you watch this movie in any way. Uh, but the plot line was pretty typical. It must have come out around Halloween because it was this typical sort of Halloween scare movie where there's a teenage girl who's babysitting at, at someone's home. And uh, it's a cold and rainy night. I mean, this is right. This is the plot line. And so she's doing her homework on the coffee table or whatever. And she gets these phone calls. And it would be the same phone call every time. I'm watching you. Have you checked the children? I mean, this was, the, this was now you've seen the movie. That's what the movie was about. 
And so there would be a phone call. I'm watching you. And you know, you're scared in this thing. And have you checked the children? And so she spent the whole time boarding up the windows and locking the doors and doing everything she could. And she kept calling the police. I can't figure out why they couldn't get there. But they couldn't, but they kept saying, if you keep the person on the phone, maybe we can trace the call. So the very end of the movie, they call her back. And we say, we've traced the call. The call's coming from inside the house. And you're like, oh, no. Well, what was the problem? She'd locked herself in now. She couldn't even get out of the house that she had locked herself in. She didn't realize the enemy was inside her own house. And this is almost exactly what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The enemy is inside the temple. The enemy's not outside the church. The enemy's on the inside. And so if you look back and you remember Hannah's beautiful prayer, it's the first part of chapter 2 that we didn't read, these uh, first 10 verses. She's trusting in the Lord, and then she says these things. You can look with me. Verse 3, she's trusting the Lord's going to bring down the proud and the arrogant. This, This little woman from a mountain town who's been blessed by the Lord, she knows there's problems, and the proud and the arrogant, they need to be brought down. Verse 9 The wicked must be cut off. Verse 10, the adversaries, the the enemies, the contenders with the Lord, she prays, will be broken to pieces. But here's the surprise. When you keep reading, you realize that the arrogant, wicked adversaries are inside the temple. They're not the Philistines. They're not the Canaanites. They're not the people on the outside. They're the people on the inside. It's actually Eli's sons and Eli himself. Look at verse 12. The worthless men are the priests. The people who are causing the cultural collapse are coming from the inside. I want you to circle this word worthless because I want to make a connection to it to the New Testament. Worthless. Worthless in Hebrew is B-E-L-I-A-L, Balial, Balial, which means wicked. They're just not worthless. They're, they're wicked people. They're, the wicked are serving inside the temple. Their spiritual and moral corruption is what's causing the collapse of the culture. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll make a connection here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, Paul has uh, established a church in Corinth. He's the founder of the church. Corinth was a very wicked city. It had a lot of idolatry and a lot of sexual perversion. And he writes two letters back to the church at Corinth. And most of his letters are, guys, you've come out of the culture. You're these new converts from Corinth. And you've got to disconnect yourself from the culture. And so he's encouraging them. And then in chapter 6, verse 14, he's saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
He's not saying just in terms of a marriage, although that's a lot of times how we think of that verse. It's, it's you've got to get yourself disconnected, not in terms of not knowing anybody, but disconnected from the activities that you used to be involved with. You used to be with, involved with this activity of unbelievers, and now you need to be unyoked. You don't need to be harnessed with that. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Balliol? Hmm. He's thinking about Eli's sons. And he's trying to help them see this very critical thing. You can't come to the inside and still be connected in the same way with the outside. That's what Eli's sons tried to do. They tried to have one foot in the culture and one foot in the world. They, they had a connection to both. And, and Paul is trying to encourage these people, and I'm trying to encourage you. You can't have a comfortable connection with God and a comfortable connection with the culture. It's just not possible. What fellowship does lightness have with, light have with darkness? Now, we're not saying that you're going to withdraw and live in a cave. But I'm talking about the habits of the culture. The things the culture celebrates. Those are things that you're going to have to say and I'm going to have to say. I'm disconnecting myself from those because I'm connecting myself with Christ. I can't have it both ways. So if you call yourself a follower of Christ, I want to just put this before you this morning. Are you trying to have connections with both? I would suggest that this leads to a collapse. It'll eventually lead to your collapse. It might lead to the collapse of your family. It might lead to a collapse of a city. It might even lead to the collapse of a whole nation. So the first thing we see here is that the enemy's on the inside. And the first thing that Samuel wants to address or God wants to address here in Samuel is the same thing Paul wants to address in the church of Corinth and the same thing God wants us to address this morning. The biggest problem may be on the inside. And it's so easy for us to say, well, it's the politicians or it's the culture or it's Hollywood or whatever it is. All of those things are going to remain the same. God's just saying, let's take care. Let's look inside first. Let's make sure there's no enemy enemy within. And the way it usually happens is that you get on the inside, but you still have some comfortable connection with sin on the outside. And you're just unwilling to break that connection. And God's helping us see you just can't have it both ways. Now, second thing, God's quiet work. In the middle of this culture collapse, God's quietly at work. And you're supposed to notice, and you might not have noticed in just reading this morning, how Samuel weaves together, or the writer weaves together, this dark commentary about what's happening connected to what's happening with Samuel. Did you notice it? Verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, The boy is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then it's followed, 12 through 17, with this this darkness. 
And then it's revisited. It's brought back up in verse 18. Now, Samuel, he's ministering before the Lord. So you've got this darkness happening. And then you have this little thread. It's not very much. It's followed by verse 22 through 25, this darkness. And then just very briefly, verse 26. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then a long passage, 27 to the end of the chapter, of how terrible this destruction is going to be for Eli's house. And then chapter 3, verse 1, now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. You're supposed to notice that. You're just supposed to notice this tiny little thread. Seems insignificant, but it's just highlighted that God's quietly at work, even while the culture is collapsing, we, we're not going to lose hope because God's got some kind of plan, and this plan is going to be rescuing the culture through this person of Samuel that we'll be seeing the next few weeks. Quietly and out of the spotlight, the Lord is shaping Samuel to be a great leader and he's doing this shaping in the midst of great sinfulness. Quietly and sort of not seen here, in the midst of this great darkness, God's just beginning to work on this one man who's going to stand up for him at one point, one critical point in history. Now, the one point I want to make here, especially to young men and young women, you're 12, you're 15, you're 20, 25. I, I want to speak to you for just a moment. You think it's hard to be godly in our culture. It, it is. I'm affirming that it is hard to be godly in our culture. But I want you to see Samuel is in a most ungodly place. I want you to appreciate the situation he's in. As far as I can tell, and we've read it together, there's no one here to help him. He gets one visit a year from a mom and dad. And I'm not saying they're not praying for him during the year, but he gets one time. And they seem to be relatively faithful. But the rest of the time, 360 days or something like that, he's stuck with Eli and the two priests, the two sons. All, they're all wicked. And he has to spend all of his time around those guys. He doesn't have a, a father figure. He doesn't have a mentor except for Eli and his two sons. And yet in the midst of all of this darkness, he shines like a bright star. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying it's possible. It's possible if you don't have a father figure. It's possible if you don't have a mentor. It's possible in the middle of a very dark culture to still say, I'm following and trusting the Lord, even in the midst of all that. To not be captured by the culture, how easy that must have been for Samuel to do. Plus, if you don't, you here, if you don't have parents to encourage you, you have Christ Community Church. You have some great men and women in this church who are willing to walk beside you, who are willing to encourage you, who are willing to be there that when you're out at your high school or middle school or college 
and you start saying, I'm not doing that anymore, and your friends kick you to the cultural curb, you're going to need somebody. When you say, yeah, I just don't watch that stuff anymore. Yeah, I don't do that stuff anymore. I don't talk that way anymore. I don't, you're going to get kicked to the curb. And there's not going to be that many people on that curb. And you're going to have to trust in the Lord. And I want you to know you can come here. Because there's quite a few people here who have been kicked to that same curb. And they're willing to walk with you and get you prepared because we live in a culture that's in collapse. Nobody's sure where it's all going to end. But in the middle of it, I know that God is working. And it might be a quiet work. It might be something that you and I, just as we look around, we don't see. It doesn't seem obvious. It's, it's just God working on one person, one soul, just weaving it together so that when the time comes, my servant Samuel, he's ready to step forward and say something about God. And he's ready to capture the heart of a whole nation and move them forward. And God might be doing that for you right now. And are you willing, young people, are you willing to be that person that gets kicked to the cultural curb that God might work on you so when the time comes, might be 20 years from now, you're ready. You're ready to leave a family. You're ready to lead a church. You're ready to lead a city. Might be ready to lead a whole nation who's finally ready to come off of the bottom and follow someone who knows God. And Samuel was ready. And we'll see as we study David. He quietly got worked on by God. And when his moment came, he was ready. But I'm telling you now, if you're not going to be working on it right now in 20 years when the culture's crying from somebody, you're not going to be able to step up. So God's quietly at work. He's looking for people who are ready to be worked on now, quietly. Not on Facebook, not on Twitter, not on Instagram, not on Snapchat, but just with the Lord. And we're, we're going to need, we do need people who are ready to do that. Third chapter here in our little study First of all, we've seen that the problem is on the inside. Secondly, we've seen how God is weaving this one, one thread, Samuel, to be ready. And third, I just want to take a look at this, this really poor leadership by Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they live life off the leash. That's sort of a, a cool term, and since I'm pretty cool, I used it. Uh, but if you're not cool like me, just think unconstrained. They live a life that's unconstrained. Not, it's, not, it's off the leash. It's, we're we're going to do whatever we want to do. And I want to just make note of three deposits they make that add up to worthlessness. Number one, verse 12, 
They did not know the Lord. Now, I'm scratching my head thinking, how is, now how is this possible? They're the priests. I mean, they're leading people in worship. They've got the robes. They've got all the accessories. They're helping people make sacrifices, yet somehow they don't know the Lord. They, they certainly had to know about the Lord. And it's, if you study, you realize this is an expression which, which really means that the Lord has no voice in their life. He has no authority in their life. Yes, they're, they've got all this accessories of religion, but there's no real voice. There's no real authority coming from God in their life. And the exact same expression, very interestingly enough, is used by Pharaoh in Exodus 5. Moses comes back to Pharaoh and he says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. It means I don't hear his voice in my court. I don't recognize his authority in my life. And Eli's two sons, these two priests, so close to the things of God, yet God has no voice, no authority in his life. That's a great warning for Christian leaders, maybe students in a Christian school. Very easy to have all the religious accessories. Very easy to sort of know how to go through the Christian thing. Know how to do it at school, know how to do it at church, know how to sort of fool yourself, fool your parents, fool your friends. But in reality, the, the, the voice of the Lord has no authority in your life. You just live according to your own voice. It's exactly what Eli's two sons are doing. So one deposit they make is they know about the Lord. They just don't allow God's voice to have any authority in their life. They obey their own voice. Number two, that second deposit they make, verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men, this offering that we're going to talk about, was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now when... In the Old Testament, there were many sacrifices made. And when the sacrifices were made, in most sacrifices, there were three different portions. There was a portion of the sacrifice that just went to the Lord. There was a portion of the sacrifice that went to the priests so they could feed themselves and feed their family. And then there was a portion that the, the people who made the sacrifice, they enjoyed. So it was part of being part of a meal fellowship. Some of it's going to the Lord, some of it's going to the priests, and some of it's coming back to me and my family. And what you read through here in these verses is that Eli's sons, they weren't satisfied with their portion. They, they not only wanted part of the family's portion, they wanted part of God's portion. They just weren't happy with their particular portion. And so they took some from the Lord and they took some from people. And God saw this as a very great sin in his sight. There's some portion that belongs to God. It's not that God needs it. It's to say, I, I, I want you to give part back to me so that you recognize everything comes from me. It's really a, a healthy step for you and your soul. It's not something that God has to have. And of course, for, we could read this and think, God, we don't do this kind of stuff anymore. And I would say, no, I'd want you to think about your your finances, 
Whatever you may think about tithing, and this isn't a sermon on tithing, for certain we're supposed to be giving to the things of the Lord. And I think a good benchmark is 10% without making it a rule. But you know what? A lot of people, they just have too much life for 10%. And they just think it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I've got payments and stuff, and I just, 10%, wow, that'd just kill me. Yep, it might. But you might be stealing from the Lord. And you might think it's no big deal. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Third deposit they make that makes them worthless is they take the women who are serving in the temple for themselves. It's terrible. One commentary says they turn the tabernacle into a brothel, a place where sin was committed rather than sin was confessed. Priests using their position, using their power for their own pleasure. So Hophni and Phineas, they live unconstrained lives. They, they didn't want, want the word of the Lord to shape their lives. And notice they don't even want their father's word. Eli comes and says, don't you, don't you understand? This is terrible. I mean, if you sin against man, God may somehow intervene. You're sinning against God. There's no one there to intervene. They just totally disregard him. And I would just suggest if you're a follower of Christ or you're thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus you have to live a constrained life. Constrained according to his word. Constrained according to his voice. And let me close just by giving two warnings that are here in the text. Verse 25, maybe the most sobering line in this whole text. But they, Eli's sons, would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Mm. Now, here's how I read it. You can check me. It's possible to sin for such a long time, to sin so terribly, that God won't grant repentance. Your heart, gets, your heart gets so hard. One commentary. Someone can remain so firm in their rebellion that God will confirm them in their rebellion. Very similar language happens to Pharaoh. He hardens his heart and then it says God hardens his heart. Now, no one knows where the point of no return is. You can't say it's a set number of years. But there seems to be some kind of line that gets crossed here by Eli's sons. And they can't turn back. They're like the teenage girl in the movie. They've locked themselves in and they can't get out now. Hebrews chapter 3. See to it, brothers. That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Why? Because if you keep hardening your heart when you hear his voice, there may be one day you can't hear his voice anymore. You can't turn around. You can't repent. And I wonder if there's anyone here. I mean, I can't see it. But you're turning away. You're a teenager who's just turning away. Slowly turning away. You know it. You can feel it. (laughs) Don't turn away. Don't, Don't harden your heart. Second great warning here. Verse 29 Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? This is the, this prophet talking to Eli and my offerings that I commanded. And Eli, you honor your sons above me. And because you honor your sons above me, verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. There's not going to be an old man left. In fact, they're going to live in distress. There won't be an old man in your house for for forever. Verse 32, verse 33. uh, There's only going to be one left, and he's going to just be weeping over what has happened. Otherwise, all of your house, Eli, shall die by the sword of men. What a terrible legacy. Eli's two sons die on the same day, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. All of Eli's descendants die by the sword, 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll get there in time. And then there's one one man left that's connected to Eli. And this one man, 150 years later, is put out of the temple to weep by Solomon. Parents, 150 years later, Eli's sin is still speaking into someone's heart. What you're sowing in right now, you may think it's no big deal, or maybe it's just going to affect me 150 years later, your great, great grandson is going to be affected by your sin. That's terrifying. I have a grandson. I can't imagine his son's son being affected negatively by what I'm doing right now. So we never want to think of our sin as something that's private or it's no big deal. It's not hurting anyone else. It's going to spill out. It's going to have this ripple effect. So it's a terrible warning. Let me just close with this one last verse, which is a little bit more encouraging. Verse 35, one day, one day I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest. He's going to do what's in my heart, and I'm going to build him a sure house. The beginning of that starts with Samuel, but Samuel's a shadow. 
a shadow of the one true priest who's going to be able to, to go before us. And that's the one person, Jesus, that we want to follow and say, yes, you can do it. I can't do it. All these warnings, I'm terrified by them. I can't do it. Can I get behind you, Jesus? And the answer is, yes, you can. If you hear his voice today, if you're slipping away, if you're sowing seeds that are going to have this negative effect, don't harden your hearts today. Come and ask somebody to pray for you, to encourage you. Follow, follow this faithful priest. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such a heavy passage to see the, the very bottom of a collapse and to be able to somehow look inside the corruption that lays at the bottom that's causing the failure of a whole culture. Would it serve as a great warning for us? May we hear your voice today. May we not harden our hearts. Help us to follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.